You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Have you ever wished that you had a direct line to your pediatrician to ask all the questions that constantly crop up while parenting? We sure have. That's why we launched the Bites of Health Podcast. Every morning, we'll answer a commonly asked pediatric question in five minutes or less. You can tune in while you're making your second cup of coffee or from the school drop-off line. So be sure to tune in to Bites of Health, streaming now. Hello, I'm Teresa McKee, your host for A Mindful Moment. Thank you for joining me as we explore ways to increase mindfulness in our day-to-day experiences. In addition to our regular weekly podcast, we also have the privilege of interviewing experts from around the world to further our understanding of how to live mindfully. Stuart Shanker is a distinguished research professor emeritus of philosophy and psychology at York University and founder of the Merit Center Limited, renowned for using cutting-edge neuroscience to help children feel happy and think clearly by better regulating themselves. In his new book, Reframed, Self-Reg for a Just Society, Dr. Shanker explores self-regulation in wider social terms. The book is grounded in three basic principles of self-reg. There is no such thing as a bad, lazy, or stupid kid. All people can learn to self-regulate in ways that promote rather than constrict growth. And there is no such thing as a fixed outcome. Outcomes can always be changed if we have the right knowledge and tools. Welcome, Stuart. Thank you so much for joining us today. It is my pleasure. There were so many interesting facets to the book, and I kind of tried to narrow things down a little bit uh, just for the sake of time. But I think really to help our listeners fully understand what we're really going to be talking about, could you describe what self-reg is? I thought you really nailed it in your description of your podcast. Uh, Self-reg is about thriving, not surviving. And for us, we look at thriving Uh, through a neurobiological lens. So I'm a neuroscientist, among other things. And to thrive, you have to have a process called parasympathetic restoration. What that means is that this is a part of your autonomic nervous system that we trigger for things like replenishing our energy, repairing cellular damage, boosting our immune system, reducing inflammation, all these things that are so important to well-being. And what we discovered in our clinic, so we ran a clinic for many years at York University, um, what we discovered was that uh, we were working with young children on the spectrum and the parents kept coming to us and saying, you know, I really need the same thing. Uh, And what we were developing was a pathway to restoration. And uh, we made some very interesting discoveries. Uh, We looked at all the different kinds of therapies that are out there that do lead to restoration. And they all have in common five basic steps. And those five steps are first reframing. So if you're doing something like uh, psychoanalysis, you're reframing emotions. 
in our work with educators, we want to reframe children's behavior, see that it's not misbehavior, it's stress behavior. That's the first step. And all good therapies have that as a sort of fundamental ground. The next step is to identify your stresses. And I'll explain why later today. This is a big thing, and it's not easy. Uh, there are obvious stresses, especially today. You and I are filming on a day when the stress load of the world is unbelievable. But there are other stresses, hidden stresses, physiological stresses, social stresses. So we we have a uh, a framework for figuring out what are your stresses, the ones that you're aware of, the ones that you're not. The next step is to reduce your stresses. And that's what all really good therapies are about. And there are different techniques for reducing stresses. The fourth step is the experiential state of calmness. Um, and that's what you're all about. And you know, for us, uh, what we have seen in our work now across Canada and around the world is a generation of children and teens that do not know what calmness feels like. What we are seeing consistently is uh, when they get tired, when they are dipping into that state of low energy and high tension, they reach for some way of giving themselves an energy fix or a shot of dopamine more likely. And unfortunately, that becomes a stress in its own right. And without that fourth step of calmness, you will not get to the fifth step. And that fifth step, as I mentioned, is restoration. The restoration that heals the body and heals the mind. So what we've been doing then is teaching educators and parents the neuroscience behind all this. I'll just mention that uh, we are going through an extraordinary revolution in neuroscience. And one of the big discoveries that we've made, I'd like to explain, I'll take myself first as an example. I have been devoted to meditation for many, many years. And so I will meditate a couple of times every day. Uh, and I usually begin my day with a short meditation and end my day that way. And so naturally, like anyone who meditates, I wanted to share the joys of this. And so I would tell the parents that we were working with, all about meditation and um, give us some suggestions, you know, of how to get yourself comfortable in a state where you can, you know, benefit. And they kept coming to us and complaining that they just couldn't do it, that they would go into monkey mind. They found it actually aversive trying to, you know, sit still for longer than a couple of minutes. There is one kind of approach to this, which says, well, you just have to bear it. You have to force yourself. Uh, that's not us. And so we're all about self-regulation, not self-control. And we made a very important discovery. And that is that the sources of this kind of agitation are really very deep in the brain, far below the part of the brain that we use to think. They're in the limbic system, that subcortex, and they're in the midbrain, very deep down. And the problem is that when the systems in the midbrain get over-aroused, then it gets over-aroused by excessive stress. Not only does it send a message up to the amygdala saying, you know, help, it actually shuts down the front part of our brain, the 
In the prefrontal cortex, we have a little system called the ventromedial prefrontal cortex. And we need that system to be aware of when we're overstressed. We need that system for self-awareness and social awareness. But when that system deep in the brain, in the midbrain, gets hyper-aroused, it shuts that system down. And so that was our problem. Our problem was we were working with these parents who were hyper-aroused because uh, we were working with children that you know, really were struggling with self-regulation. And in order for them to get to that state of being able to meditate or whatever it is that you do for mindfulness, we had to go through those five steps. We had to become aware that we're overstressed. We had to figure out what are my stresses? What are the hidden stresses? We had to figure out how can I reduce those stresses? And what we realized is that self-reg is a pathway to mindfulness. And that's what we have been working on now for the last 25 years. And what we have discovered is that absolutely anyone can get there. It's amazing to me. I've been in this field now for about 15 years, the explosion of new information coming out of neuroscience, which really helps understand mindfulness better. You know, the two are pretty symbiotic. So I agree completely. You point out in those five steps that this is really not about managing a child's behavior, but about promoting understanding of a child's behavior. And I'm wondering if you can share maybe some tips or information that might help parents start making that shift. So we have a sort of magical tool, and that is that we teach our parents that when your kid does something that makes you upset, angry, agitated, whatever, ask yourself why, and then ask yourself why now. Now, this does a couple of things. First thing it does is our own limbic system, it gets aroused too. And that's why uh, our immediate impulse may be to shout or to punish or to discipline or to threaten you know, you won't get your iPhone for 16 years. So what we want to do is we want to insert that pause, but we also want you to start thinking about, is this actually a misbehavior? Is my kid misbehaving or is this a stress behavior? A misbehavior is something that the kid's done on purpose where the kid is testing limits or whatever, but stress behaviors are not intentional. They are caused by uh, systems deep inside the brain. So that's the key they're caused. So what we want our parents to learn then, and we always get the same question, well, how do I know? How do I know which is which? And it turns out that there are all kinds of signs of when it's a stress behavior. So I'll give you one very simple one. A child's tone of voice changes when it's stress behavior. So the pitch goes up a little, uh, they speak a little faster, If you listen, you can hear the tension in their voice. When it's misbehavior, they tend to talk too much. (laughs) They give too many explanations. But the shocking thing uh, for most of our parents was just how often it was stress behavior in their kid. Now, this is important. And the reason it's important is I touched on it a second ago. Our own red brain gets very aroused if we think our child is misbehaving. It's when our red brain, our own limbic system is aroused, our own voice changes. We become a little bit more emphatic. 
we, not to mention what we actually say. The second that you ask yourself, is it stress behavior? And realize that it's stress behavior. And then ask yourself, why? Why am I seeing this stress behavior? What happens is very interesting. Your own arousal turns on a dime. You calm right down. In fact, we call it flipping the switch. And now you are in a state where you can begin to ask why in a genuine way. In other words, not why on earth did you do that? But why are you feeling this? And then you start to realize. So I'll give you a very interesting example that we had. So we were working with a family and they were very upset with their teenage son. And he refused to have dinner with the family. And the reason they came to see us was because uh, it was Thanksgiving and grandma was coming for Thanksgiving and he refused to have dinner with grandma. And so they were all sitting around and we had our team of therapists and we're talking to the family, not really paying much attention to the kid. And uh, out of the blue, he tells us that they had been to a, a steakhouse the night before and he loved it. He had a hamburger but he wished he could have had the steak. So our mental health therapist said, why didn't you have the steak? If, if that's what you want, it looks so good. And he looked at her like she was an idiot. And he said, you know, and he did this with a knife and fork. And she said, does using cutlery bother you? And he said, yeah, of course, everybody knows that. Well, nobody knew it. He had a condition called misophonia. And he was very sensitive when he was stressed, very sensitive to certain kinds of noise, such as the sound of cutlery on plates. So the mental health therapist said to him, well, is that why you don't have dinner with your family? Is that why you didn't have dinner with granny? And he said, yeah. He said, I would have come if mom had served finger foods. So it's a great example that, you know, we jumped to the conclusion that what I don't find stressful, my child doesn't find stressful. But children are unique. Everyone is different. In fact, we've made two big discoveries in this work. One is that every kid is different. And two, that the little buggers change on you all the time. So what was a stress? You know, what wasn't a stress last week is a stress this week or whatever. So we want to become very mindful of these signs of stress behavior. Now, I mentioned to you at the outset that when we are overstressed, our VMPFC, our, our, that part of our awareness, part of the brain shuts down. And if we're really stressed by our child's behavior, we can't actually see the signs. We don't hear the change in tone of voice. We don't see what's happening with the pupils or the facial complexion. So by asking why and why now, what we're also trying to do is to bring that part of the brain back online so that we can be mindful of the signs of stress behavior. What happens then is, is a bit of magic because as we saw, as we were sitting around that table, that whole family's attitude changed on a dime and you could see the love bouncing around that table. And that's what happens. The child who's overstressed hears in your voice, sees in your eyes that true empathy, and that has a magical impact on the child's stress. So in all of our work, we made a really interesting discovery that the question that we were presented with was, can you teach this to young children on the spectrum? And what we found was, yes, you can. 
uh, around the age of three, they can start to learn this. Well, if I can teach this to a young child on the spectrum, I can teach this to anybody. Anybody can become mindful, mindful of themselves, mindful of others. Yeah, I totally agree. And I'm excited when I hear that mindfulness is being taught in elementary schools, because I think I think yes. it needs to start in preschool, actually. But I that, do, too. Yeah, because then it becomes just part of you know your normal. It's not hard anymore. It's so hard for some adults to get it. Like you said, it's even it's hard for adults to sit still. It's hard for adults to meditate, many of them. But for kids, if you start early, then it's just part of their natural being. And then I just think the whole world would be a better place, which, of course, is what your book is really about. You've answered a lot of my questions, but I do have some more. This ties into a little bit to what you were just talking about, but you say in the book that maladaptive modes of self-regulation ultimately end up impairing our ability to cope with the stress at hand, while mindful self-regulation helps us transform what had been a negative experience into a positive catalyst for growth. So I'm wondering if you can help our listeners understand, first of all, I mean, especially today with everything that's been happening, I think a lot of people may be turning to some sort of maladaptive um, methods, but can you help them understand why that's so important? So part of it's what you were just talking about, because we can't think when we're in that state anyway. This also ties into modeling with the child and what the child is picking up from the parents that you were just talking about. But how do they make that shift to look at what's maladaptive versus what's mindful? So it's, so for me, that's actually the most important point in the book. So to explain it, we have to just spend one second on self-regulation. What exactly is self-regulation? And self-regulation basically refers to how we manage stress. That's all it means. So we noticed something very important, again, in our work with kids on the spectrum. These little guys would be very sensitive to stresses that most kids are not. For example, there is an energy that comes off your eyes. For a little guy on the spectrum, this can be very intense. In fact, it can be painful. What we were seeing was that these little guys would gaze avert, turn their head aside. This is a maladaptive way of dealing with stress. And why do we say that? Well, it works to reduce the stress of the moment. However, we need those face-to-face encounters with mommy and daddy in order to learn all kinds of things, language, emotions, facial expressions. And so what we, uh, I mean, our whole research program was about this. It was about how can we reduce the stress of social interaction so that the child enjoys looking at mom and dad, enjoys social interaction. And that's where we succeeded. What we find now is that children and teens have all sorts of maladaptive ways of dealing with stress. Perhaps this has been a very intense high stress period going back to the beginning of COVID. In fact, our numbers, which we study carefully, tell us that children have been overstressed for quite a long time now, probably starting around the mid-90s and getting worse every year. Now, perhaps to deal with that stress, what they do is they resort to hours on the computer or, you know, playing a video game or watching a movie. And unfortunately, uh, that's a maladaptive way of dealing with your stress, because in excess, what it does is it doesn't get to the heart of whatever it was that was troubling you. So say it's a teenager, likely it'll be something like an emotional or a social stress. 
So you haven't done anything to actually work on that stress. What you've done is you've you've tried to avoid it, escape it, and maybe self-soothe. But unfortunately, for reasons that I, I can't explain today, these actually increase the kid's anxiety. Okay, so there's a maladaptive way. Now, what's the adaptive way? What's the, the healthy way of self-regulating of deal with your stress? And here we come to one of the secrets of our species. All human babies are born premature, around two to four months premature. But what it means is that our number one strategy for dealing in a healthy manner with our stress is social connection, is to go to our parent, this magical connection between the parent's brain and the child's brain, between limbic systems. That never leaves us. Uh, at no point in our life does that not remain our most effective strategy for dealing with stress. Your podcast is an interesting example of this. I mentioned to you uh, before we came on the air how wonderful your sound is. You are establishing an interbrain connection with all of your listeners. Your very voice, your smile, you have a gentle smile, your eyes, all of this is calming. This is what we do for each other. We know that loneliness is one of the greatest detriments to physical and mental health. So when we talk about mindfulness, what we discovered is the root to mindfulness is with another, someone that can soothe us. We don't need words. We don't need a lecture. I don't need a TED Talk. I just need your presence. I just need to feel that warmth and security. And now I can begin to benefit from things like meditation or whatever it is that I choose for restoration. Yeah, it's really interesting that you brought that up because I get comments, not about the topics we cover, but my voice helps people calm soothing. down or go to sleep. It, yeah, it's, it's very soothing. It's just really interesting to me because I never thought of that when this started. Say one thing about that. Of course. What your voice says, although we're not aware of it, is I am grounded. I am calm. You are lending your calmness. And that's why people respond. Really fascinating. We'll continue this conversation right after this brief message. I do want to talk a little bit about teenagers specifically because I can't even imagine after the <laughs> last two years, you know, the teen years are so difficult to begin with, but I really have a lot of empathy for parents with children, period, during this time. But there were a couple of points I wanted to bring up. One is something that I do talk about frequently, which is devices. You use the uh, example of the Percy Jackson movies. Yes. And that the Lotus Casino, but you describe it as self-regulating with machines and how that pertains to our smart devices. And so I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the impact, you started to touch on it, but the impact that that has on our teens at this point where they're on it, it seems like all of the time. Let me just back up a step. Okay. Back in the 1970s, psychologists began researching a part of the brain that's very deep. It's called the mesolimbic pathway. This pathway triggers dopamine. Dopamine is a very nice neurohormone. It makes us feel powerful, gives us psychic energy. Uh, they were doing this experiment on rats who have a similar physiology to our own. And the rats were presented with two different resources. One, they could stimulate this pathway this dopamine pathway, or they could feed and drink. 
And what happened was the rats would focus exclusively on the dopamine. Not only did they prefer the dopamine fix to food and water, they would stay on the dopamine fix to the point of death, dying from starvation because all they wanted was another shot of dopamine. Unfortunately for us, the people that design the various things that you're talking about, they've studied the same stuff. They've studied how can I trigger dopamine? Of course, the games aren't a, they're not a menace in themselves. Um, there's nothing wrong with playing it for a bit. But the point you just made a second ago was that we're looking at incessant use. And our concern, what we have seen, is kids that are being addicted to a dopamine fix. And you can get a dopamine fix these days from not just from games, you can get it from fast food, you can get it from music. Everybody is studying the same thing. This is not healthy. And what we want the teens to recognize is when they are overstressed, why they are overstressed, what they can do that is a healthy way, a growth promoting way of self-regulating, of dealing with, dealing with their stress, not going for that quick dopamine fix, but instead going for a walk or talking to mom and dad or talking to whatever it is, something that will restore that homeostatic balance that leads to calmness, which is the precursor of physiological restoration. So this is a big deal today because we are seeing an anxiety epidemic unlike anything that we've recorded in the previous 20 years. The anxiety that we're seeing is a symptom of excessive dopamine and a lack of homeostasis. So what we want to do, we want the teen to understand this. One of the big motivators for teens is they cannot stand the feeling that they're being manipulated. So we want them to understand how the games work, how the hook model works, and take their own destiny, their own balance into their own hands. Again, does this always work? Yes, but they may need a fair bit of parental support in order to get to that point where they begin to, and this is true for all of us, where they begin to seek out those mindfulness experiences because of the intense pleasure which these experiences bring. It's just fascinating to me and, and the long-term ramifications. I, it boggles the mind because of the social disconnection in some ways by being on those devices all the time on top of- That's, that's another point. That's, that's, that's a huge point. Yeah. Uh, can I just mention something in response yeah. to that? You said a few minutes ago that we're constantly making new discoveries. So a couple of years ago, a team in England discovered that we have special dopamine neurons in part of the midbrain, which is designed for social connection. Now, the reason for social connection was its survival mechanism. Our chances of survival are significantly enhanced in groups. And we get all kinds of rewards from the group. We get safety and security and shared resources, and we get intimacy and touch. And what we are seeing in this population that's become addicted to the devices is a shocking rise in loneliness. Now, they say, but how can that be? I mean, I'm on social media. And the reason is loneliness is the trigger for this system deep in the midbrain that tells me 
I need the rewards that social intimacy brings. So they're not getting those rewards. And those rewards are touch. They are intimacy. They are, it's probably the opposite. What they're encountering is competition, is aggression. It's a very interesting example of how our science um, is really helping us to understand things that I think intuitively all parents knew, but now it, now we can get some scientific explanation behind all this. Yeah, and I'm happy for it because I'm hoping that will yes. help make the case. <laughs> yeah. Another thing on the teens, before we move on to maybe parenting, but in the book, you quote Mandela, to be free is not merely to cast off one's chains, but to live in a way yes. that respects and enhances the freedom of others. And of course, I do agree with you that it's pretty tragic that we've ignored that wisdom as adults, but also when it comes to our children's well-being. Now, you bring this up specifically related to teenagers being in chains. Can you describe that further for our listeners? So this field of self-regulation was discovered in the middle of the 19th century by a Frenchman called Claude Bernard. And what he said is that, quote, homeostasis, that means biological balance. Homeostasis is the foundation of freedom. That got picked up by the early 20th century theorists. What did they mean? They draw a distinction between political freedom, if you like. So you are free to get the vaccine or not get the vaccine, uh, pay the consequences or don't pay the consequences. So that's political freedom. That's liberty and psychological freedom. And psychological freedom refers to am I able to choose? Am I able to weigh alternatives? Think about long-term consequences. When we work with, say, someone who has depression, in no sense would we say that they are psychologically free. They are in torment. They cannot choose. They have like these discs that keep on rolling over and over and over. Suppose I'm working with a kid who's got Tourette's syndrome. They're not choosing to swear. This is a compulsion. So what we're looking at is what is the foundation? of psychological freedom. And that's where these early neurobiologists had a brilliant insight. They said it's homeostasis. What does that mean? It means that when I'm not overstressed, so when I'm calm, I can think, I can wait, I can actually choose. Now, if we tie that into what we were just talking about, if we're seeing a generation that don't know what calmness feels like, then we are seeing a generation that is not psychologically free. When we talk about self-reg as a pathway to mindfulness, we also explain it's a pathway to psychological freedom, the freedom to choose what you actually desire, not to come back to that hook model, not to have my behavior manipulated by someone who's planting compulsion. What we're looking at then is not just helping teens acquire that calmness that they will need to deal with stresses like the stresses we are seeing today, unexpected stresses. But we want them to have that capacity to choose what they truly want and not what, say, a demagogue has tried to manipulate in their mind. To really be grounded, to be mindful of what their own values are, what their own aspirations are, not just for themselves, but for their society. 
and this goes way beyond teens. We've seen a lot of that over the past couple of years in adults as well. And unfortunately, yes. Yeah. It's just so important. I feel like the time is flying by here. I do want to talk to you a little bit before we go about parenting. You outline in the book, the similarity between teaching styles and parenting styles and the effect they have on kids. And just to be really to note this, you point out that there's some judgment in these terms. So I don't want to misrepresent this, but you state that instead of styles, they may be maladaptive modes of self-regulation. So I'm wondering if you can explain the difference between permissive, authoritarian, and authoritative styles or modes, however you want to look at it, of parenting and teaching and what the impact is they have on children. That's a good question, I know. but (laughs) (laughs) The three terms that you just cited were developed by Diana Baumreind back in the 1960s. The authoritarian parent, that's the one, you know, says, won't listen to the child. It's my way or the highway and so on. And what we have learned is that that is the source of all kinds of difficulties as the child grows up, all kinds of emotional and social difficulties. The permissive parent can't handle the stress of parenting and so just says whatever and, and agrees to everything. For Baumrein, the authoritative parent is the one that talks and listens, that engages in collaborative problem solving with their teen rather than laying down the law. And what we have since found is that children do best when parents truly do listen. When we say listen, we mean listen with their eyes as well as with their ears. But Baumrein herself was still operating in a self-control mindset. And what we have done in our own work is shifted from self-control to self-regulation. In essence, the difference here is self-control is the idea that you need willpower to resist your impulses. So we're going to try to strengthen our child's willpower and give them the right right desires. With self-regulation, it's about managing stresses. And what we find is that when children are overstressed, they become highly impulsive. When they're overstressed, they lose empathy. They lose their sense of right and wrong. So what we want to do is rather than disciplining them, we want to understand as a parent, why is my child stuck in low energy, high tension? We use something called a Thayer matrix. And parents can download this for free from our website. Bob Thayer identified four states, energy tension states. When kids are in bottom right, which is low energy, high tension, that's when you get trouble. So in self-reg, we're going to ask why. We're going to reframe. Why is my kid stuck there? What are the stresses that explain why my kid is stuck? And so we begin to, we become stress detectives with the kid. We begin to reduce the stresses so that the child goes up the matrix, becomes high energy, low tension. And what we discover is that all those wonderful impulses that we know were in our kid come back. Now our child is happy, cheerful, kind, empathetic. So rather than trying to exercise our own self-control, you said this at the very start, we're going to try to understand, understand why this is happening, and then help our child or our teen develop the skills for self-understanding, for self-regulation, so that they know when they're becoming overstressed, they know why, 
and they know what they can do to reduce that stress load so that they can return to genuine calmness. And then they'll restore when they go to sleep. It just makes such an enormous difference. And it's hard to explain to people who are in a constant state of high stress. Yes, it's very hard. Right. To get them to understand they don't have to stay in that state. But what I really appreciated about the yes, book that's right. is really that it explains the science, what's really happening in the brain. So it's not just about mindfulness or it's not just, it's not about control for sure, but it's about understanding there are certain things that are happening that if we don't understand they're happening, then we can't counteract you got it. the automatic responses. So yeah, I thought exactly. that was excellent. That's a great way to sum it all up. <laughs> great. Well, do you have any final thoughts you'd like to share with our listeners before we go on any of these topics or anything else in the book? I will tell your listeners one thing. Okay. Okay. So before today, my assistant gave me a bunch of your podcasts and I went through these and I want your listeners. So here's your homework. Identify five of your friends or relatives that aren't listening to the podcast and get them to listen. We need this now. <laughs> Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And I really so appreciate you sharing all of this wisdom. I think it's invaluable at this time. And again, it's not just for kids. It's all of us. And we all need it. You can see it every day when you turn on the news or you read a newspaper. Everyone needs it. So thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome, Teresa. It's been a pleasure. For Stuart Shanker, the possibility of a truly just and free society begins with how we see and nurture our children. His two previous books, Calm, Alert, and Learning and Self-Reg, were written for educators and parents. While Reframed, the final book in the trilogy, unpacks the unique science and conceptual practices that are the very lifeblood of self-reg. You can see our full interview at amindfulmoment.com, as well as a link to his book. And you can find out more about Stuart Shanker's program at self-reg.ca. Thanks again to Stuart for joining us today and sharing so many insights into the connections between neuroscience and self-regulation. Until next time, I encourage you to meditate daily and be mindful in all of your everyday activities. Simply bring your full awareness to the present moment to build your mindfulness skills, paying attention to every detail of what you're doing, from washing dishes to work tasks to taking a walk. Your mind will wander, and that's normal. Each time you notice it has wandered, that's mindfulness. Consider how wonderful the world could be if everyone was mindful. You can help make that happen. It all starts with a mindful moment. Please subscribe to A Mindful Moment with Teresa McKee and rate this podcast so that others can find us. Follow us on social media at A Mindful Moment Podcast. Visit our website, amindfulmoment.com, to access all podcasts and interviews. A Mindful Moment is written by Teresa McKee. The English version is hosted by Teresa McKee, and the Spanish version is translated and hosted by Paola Tile. Intro music, Retreat by Jason Farnham. Outro music, Morning Stroll by Josh Kirsch, MediaWrite Productions. Thank you for tuning in. This podcast is produced by Work to Live Productions.